Described as a praxis against American monothought, Cody Wilson's work at Defense Distributed, which designs and builds machines that allow you to design and build implements of defense, has been an integral part of the modern conversation on the right and means to bear arms. Wilson himself has long held an interest in civic discourse, serving as student class president in high school and college, and before dropping out of law school, was on course for a noted, yet still normal, middle-class life. This all began to change for Cody when he discovered, through embracing one of the very fundamental principles of American culture and constitutional law in the Second Amendment, that the American empire and its drive to dominate is very different in practice than the original spirit of the founding documents of the Republic. Freedom, justice, and liberty for all no longer seems to apply, if it ever did. But the one great lesson Cody's experience may remind us is that in order to enjoy such virtues, one must always stand ready to defend them. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. The Today is 14 March 2021. I'm Alito Atreides, and I am here with Adam Smith of the Myth of the 20th Century podcast, and he'll do the uh, the introduction of the whole crew, I think. Oh, sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're joined by an extremely special guest. Um, I'm not even sure if he's uh, more famous or infamous, uh, but he's certainly one of the more relevant people we've ever spoken to. Cody Wilson is joining us, and of course, my co-host Hank, and then uh, Fulwer uh, is also here. But uh, Cody, welcome, and everyone, welcome. Yeah, thanks, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. When you said special guest, yeah. uh, I, I thought you were talking, very special guest, I thought you were talking about, and I got real excited for a minute. Yeah. Some of us are just special in our own way. I like when you said extremely, because I was hoping you would said like our extremist guests, you know. <laughs> but, well, we're all domestic. All uh, domestic tea won't finish that word uh, now in this yeah. country. Yeah. So, you know, I'm actually same happy, boat. though, about that. Like, I'm really happy that the whole front caught up, you know, like pretty much anybody left of or right of Newt Gingrich is like some kind of problem now. So I, I like that. Yeah. It's nice to all be in the same boat. It makes it comfier. Yeah, it's really going to force. I, I I don't know. I mean, I've, I watched I watched this one party discussion on Twitter where they're like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't make it so hard for them because if they overcome, you know, <laughs> they'll be better equipped to fight us. And, uh, this is good that so many people are thrown off the platforms and forced to really think about infrastructure. Yeah, they're. Uh, it's almost like they're unintentionally producing the whole uh, Maoist Darwinian process for. Uh, their enemies and you're just now realizing that this is the case i uh i feel like i'm already kind of off the agenda if there is one but yeah it's like to, to watch the post alt-right ferment at the moment yeah it's an ugly thing but also the, the survivors right the mutated survivors of this process i feel like are getting really strong 
cockroaches. <laughs> it's something. I don't exactly right. It's like hard to watch it happen. Like I, someone just told me, like, and Milo is not a good example, but someone just told me Milo is like not gay any longer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in the last two days or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and I, then uh, you know Nick Fuentes is going through some kind of metamorphosis, and uh, it's just fun to watch. Blowing eyes meme. I'm growing more heterosexual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? It's like, how did uh, that work? He just woke up one day and he said, "Oh, you know, my gay's not bothering me so much today." Yeah, I, I think uh, I think he wasn't getting enough attention. I think that's as simple as that. Um, I just don't want to ask that question for the fear that it'll. Uh, you know what? All the uh, basically all the incentives are now aligned correctly. It's like, well, we can barely afford to eat, so like, there's no longer you know the GMO and the soy and the diet. You know, you're like having to wake up and work for a living. You know, all the hormones work out. <laughs> You become like a real human being again. Well, as as Leto mentioned, uh, it is March 2021, and I just wanted to bring up some current events uh, to get us started. Uh, I think two particularly relevant items that Cody might be able to comment on are, one, uh, the escalation in gun and ammunition sales and uh, accompanying restrictions with COVID. And also, uh, you kind of had a, a, a teaser that you dropped on Thaddeus's Russell's um, podcast about you have something in the works. Now, maybe it's still in the works, but if you'd like to uh, make uh, an update on that, uh, we'd love to hear it. But, you know, more, more critically, I think uh, what's going on in the defense world, especially in America with this new administration and all the uh, comeuppance from COVID? Yeah, okay, good. That's a good start. And, you know, we, we just got two new gun bills passed out of the House last week. Uh, which Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, says he will he will give a floor vote to. Uh, so, you know, we went from crisis to crisis in 2020. That's no secret. There was a uh, COVID, and then the the race the racial crisis, and then the political crisis at the end of the year. Those three crises together drove like a a public consciousness um, of you know popular firearm ownership, but also people seemed to understand that Trump was probably going to sink and that a, a new gun control regime was coming into power. Uh, and so I've basically seen across the industry, and it doesn't matter who, who you're talking about. If you're talking about ammunition, we're seeing companies, especially wholesalers, sold out um, to the public for, you know, in back ordered like a year, two years. Um, we're seeing incredible stuff. You know, I just saw a thousand rounds of 5.56 going for almost a thousand dollars, for example, if you add shipping and stuff. I mean, we have, we've got post-crisis levels uh, of, of everything. You can't find any... I just bought a Scorpion on Gunbroker or something for like a thousand bucks. I mean, it's, uh, it's a huge problem. And all the producers, from what I can see, like I just took uh, a guy from PSA out to lunch uh, last week. The producers are waiting and seeing as well. Like everybody's just waiting on the political situation to determine how to allocate capital. There's supply chain problems because of COVID. Everybody's backordered a year, two years, you know, and some of these backorders are getting canceled. And it's similar to the shortages and crises we're seeing, like in semiconductors and paper and steel. I mean, it, it goes deeper into the elemental supply chain. And, and basically, like, all these producers were relying, you know, basically, we, we learned as retail gun purchasers that we're all downstream of, of defense, but, like, really downstream of government ordering. And so the more the governments themselves get upset in an international sense, the more orders they place. We're looking at, I, I think, for the entirety of the Biden presidency, we're looking at strong Soviet-style back orders and lines. 
And is that an opportunity for you guys because you cut out some of the uh, external components of the manufacturing in theory? You create products that create the product of defense. And is that mitigating some of the risk that people might be exposed to from extended supply chains? Well, I would say in general, like I, I, I think on paper that that's a good read, but um, everyone's figuring out the crisis at the same time. So people hedge, you know, they hedge their bets. My back order is almost as bad as anybody else's in the industry. You know, if you want a ghost gunner right now, sorry, uh, you know, you're going to have to go to eBay and get it for twice the price because uh, my my back order is something like six months, you know, verging on eight months, depending upon my uh, production situation. And I'm still... Uh, I'm still kind of tied to Japan and Taiwan for a couple of core components. And, you know, when when Taiwan throws its hands up and says, like, yeah, sorry, we're out of we're out of semiconductors, you know, that that screws me, too. Um, so I want to I want to say it's good stuff. Right. But it's just like this is such a wide ranging set of crises and they're all interdependent. And, you know, there's this consequences of offshoring our material production and defense industrial base that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say uh you know, I'm the solution. I, I'm just as affected. And then, of course, everybody in the industry, you know, you got to have more than just my machine to make uh, your handgun or your, or your rifle. You want kit parts, you want lower parts kits, you know, you want barrels. All this stuff is hit all at the same time. And I don't see it getting any better. Yeah. Not to mention the whole issue of ammunition. Even if you can get a weapon right now, I've, I've seen some places where the cost of guns have actually gone down. And it's just because there's no ammo for it. And uh, it, it, the demand is there. But uh, once you don't have the ammo for it, the, the ability to make the weapon is kind of a moot point. Yeah, so that's a good point, actually. I've seen some thaw, not not a huge thaw, but like uh, Glocks and Sig parts, for example. You know, handguns are coming back. That was what everybody wanted for like the last year. Uh, but good luck getting that 9mm, right? Yeah. It, um, well, I was going right. to say... The selling of the guns itself, it te- my experience anecdotally is it tends to be more uh, old model uh, brick and mortars, you know, stores because they have rent to make. So, uh, you know, suddenly they'll do something to move the weapons. But like I said, it's it's being it's still the issue of the ammo for it, and uh, you know, it's harder to move something if you know you can't supply it. From what I know of the big, I'm, I'm not sure if this is relevant, guys, but you know, like if this is just a shop that's not relevant to your listeners, let me know. But from what I've seen, like structurally and uh, and otherwise, like the bigger producers like Palmetto State, Armory, and bigger groups, uh, you know, they let a lot of their warehouse go, you know, uh, a lot of what they'd stocked go in 2020. And then there's been a big reckoning uh, with inflation, of course, and the adjustments in, in steel and, and shipping prices. And so now prices have had to adjust to allow some of those backwards to build again. But it's just not realistic. I mean, they're you know they're stocking some stuff, but the the demand is rising so much faster than than any kind of adjustments, macro adjustments that can be made. So if you're not careful, like if you're a brick and mortar, yeah, you had a good couple quarters at you know in 2020, but now you're out, you know, um, and it's really hard to get that resupply. Yeah, uh, and again, I know I'm interjecting, but just from the anecdotal situation, because in the South, a lot of times, uh, big brick and mortar gun stores tend to be co-located with a gun range. And uh, the gun range, in a lot of ways, functions as a, a loss leader to get people into the uh, the store to look at weapons to buy them. And uh, the whole ammunition situation is just hurting the uh, the sort of casual walk-ins that may be the bulk of their sales, you know, a lot of quarters. Well, you know, I th- I saw this happen because before before we started recording, I guess I went out and shot a bunch of shot a bunch of clay you know, clay pigeons 
with my 20 gauge a couple of days ago and I was like on oh, driving around looking for because uh, I wanted to go do it again. I was looking for 20 gauge target rounds and they just didn't exist. But the thing that I thought that sort of amazed me was that not only did the rounds not seem to exist, the gun stores themselves weren't even open. I mean, this was like, you know, Saturday at noon and you pull up and it says they're right there on their hours. It says, you know, uh, Saturday and Sunday, 12 to 5. They were, you know, they were just closed, you know, like uh, one o'clock in the afternoon. That might be what happened. They, they might just be out of stuff to sell. Yeah. You know, what state what state was that, if you don't mind me asking? Or is that too personal? Oh, South Carolina. Yeah, South Carolina. I mean, I, you know, I, I hard to say, right? Everything's got these local dependencies. But, um, you know, I mean, the, the COVID thing, too, messed everything up. A lot of people's risk tolerance is completely skewed. And as we know, the going in public even in the south there are a bunch of power boomers who are still afraid of the virus <laughs> you know so uh and private clubs have had different rules from what i've seen in texas and you know it's just this uh, i don't know twin or or even like uh triplet set of crises and it's really hard to tease it out even now all i know is the prices have got to go up and supply chains are getting thin what i find interesting is the sort of impact that it has on social networks in the kind of gun shooting, shooting sports, however you'd like to characterize it. Like I've seen networks of uh, basically gophers uh, pop up where people are sending scouts out to the four corners of the metro uh, to try to find where actually has ammunition in stock so that they can send the rest of the horde out uh, out on a raid, which is Something that uh, I did not notice in the last uh, Obama-era panic. Uh, but I'm wondering, uh, like, I mean, I think this dovetails very well, too. The the CNC community, it's not just you buy the thing and then you just crank out whatever. It's hooked into this huge network of designers and debuggers and people who uh, actually put substantial amounts of time into extending the platform. And I'm wondering if you see the same sort of uh uh, increase in complexity and depth of these social networks over time. Yeah, I do. Uh, that's a, that's a good observation. Um, you know, nothing nothing is as of yet solving the ammunition problem from uh, these newer networks, like these kids that have, have really leaned into the three D printing and the and the debugging, as you said, which we kind of call the open source development of our space. Um, but I have seen a, a bunch of people very critically uh, considering how to you know, hack the, the primer manufacturing system because that's really what it comes down to. And, and reloaders in typical crises, let's say like the, the Obama era ammunition crisis, you know, reloaders really had the last laugh there. But at this point, it, it's it's so deep, uh, like the industrial, you know, when you rattle the industrial chain, it, it goes all the way down to, there's only a handful of, of, of major or let's say prime primer manufacturers. So that's that's the core of the ammunition question. And you can only uh, DIY ammo to a, to a certain degree. Uh, now I say, I say that today, right now, necessity is the mother of invention, and surely, like these crises, if they're to last so long, uh, will produce a kind of network effects that will overcome them. But I'm not seeing what those are at the moment. Neither, though, am I predicting some kind of, um, I don't know, complete doom. I mean, I really do think the producers can can produce into the uncertainty. But but at the moment, for example, NSSF and uh, the major trade groups that, you know, people think of the NRA, but they're, the NRA is more emblematic of the discussion and not actually as, as attuned and a, as good a coordinator of industry action as the NSSF is. And when I, what I see from NSSF is a, more of like communicating directly with the new generation of producers that, that 
really made their money during Trump and haven't quite been considered like um, peers of the old guard. And by the old guard, you know, I just mean Smith and Wesson, Winchester, Ruger, that kind of stuff. So there's, I do see a realignment happening where, okay, now that there's these gut checks happening out of Congress, uh, NSSF is, is meeting, and let's say Larry Keene is meeting with like uh, the new kids <laughs> who, who've come up in the last four or five years, and they're all determining kind of what their industry interests are. And that does extend to more DIY stuff when DIY had never been included. And I don't mean the kids 3D printing, but I do mean popular companies like Polymer 80 uh, and even Tilden's company, 80% Arms, online sellers and kit sellers, you know. Um, so I, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, essentially gradual and incremental realignment happening. And that is that includes an industrial realignment. That's really the most I can I can see and say from my point of view. Well, what I find interesting about the Ghost Gunner in particular is that when I was setting up my machine shop, I looked for a long time uh, at various uh, combinations of like CNC and manual mills. And as far as I can tell, it, it's wildly under-publicized that the Ghost Gunner 3 is the cheapest out-of-the-box CNC setup that you can get by like an order of magnitude. Unless you're talking about kind of, you know, hacky... Chinese like bolt a router to an XY uh, access uh, sort of things, but the the actual physical capabilities of the machine, you know, it's not just for guns. Honestly, it's uh, like the two genders of machinists seem to be model train enthusiasts and uh, gun manufacturers, and I've not seen a single model train enthusiast rocking a ghost gunner, and I don't know why. Is that your next uh, untapped market? <laughs> yeah, yeah, model train boomers. Uh, I actually think that's a good read. Uh, Ghost Gunner, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise why Ghost Gunner is under-publicized because, you know, the Sovietization of the press uh, has basically demanded that you can't, to, to, to cover the Ghost Gunner in any, in any way is, is basically to endorse it. And uh, especially in the last two years, there's been this kind of agreement in, in editors' rooms that they're not going to promote what's happening here. Um, it, it, go ahead. I was going to say it has an odd effect by the uh, the way they haven't covered it to to almost provide a level of operational security that you wouldn't be able to provide for your own self. You know, I think that's true, and some of it's uh, some of it's a component of, of decision making. Like, obviously, I I got in trouble a couple of years ago, and I've I've purposely chosen to not keep yeah. my dick out, both literally and figuratively. We appreciate. So, it. <laughs> yes, sorry guys, but anyway, <laughs> you know, it's. I, there's there's some adjustments that have to happen now too, and I guess maybe I'll talk about Curtis as we go on in, in these discussions. But you know, it, it doesn't help anymore to um, basically, you know, the power and elite interests all agree at this point that Ghost Gunner is a huge problem. So it doesn't really help the situation to come out and advertise Ghost Gunner as a huge problem anymore. Um, yeah. So yeah, there are there are the, these kind of differences in how we we approach marketing the, of the equipment. Although I will say it's not as it's not as stark as uh, you might imagine. Like we have networks of advertising if we need it. The problem is the word of mouth is so strong, the dealer network is so strong, and the and the gun making interest is so strong that there's really not been time to characterize these other markets uh, and to shape the marketing toward them uh, because we we barely have the capacity now to to fill the demand that there is. It's just, you know, a set of incentives that are all kind of trapped within each other. Yeah. I will say, though, 
because I'm not I'm not really a good advertiser of the machine as well. So like I'm on this podcast, right? And you guys are like, well, you know, Ghost Gunner is great. And like I don't even take the time to agree with you. But um, like, yeah, it's a good machine. And it was true for quite a while that the next best machine or equivalent was like a Tormach. And you're not going to spend that kind of money for the, uh, for the same type of like, uh, you know, output and, uh, and accuracy that Ghost Gunner is going to give you. I, I've, I've seen one other company kind of enter the space, like Bree Pettis, my old my old nemesis in 3D printing. He he bought other Machine Co. and, and their Bantam Tools CNC that was a PCB CNC, uh, three axes vertical CNC. And they've recently beefed it up and, and made it about twice the price of Ghost Gunner. But they say it can do similar things in aluminum now. Of course, we have yet to to test one they, they have not had a successful launch but i, I do think they will have a, a good launch in time and, and will try to compete both with their uh, software controls and with whatever mechanical advantages they may have I, I don't know that they exist but it is a cnc that you could say is close to our class it's about twice as expensive um still i think everybody who's in the know in the gun space you know they've, they've all got their hands on one or two of these machines what, what is your take on laser centering and uh 3d printing metal uh, I mean, my take is these are good, these are good technologies. Uh, you know, the University of Texas is where I kind of came up and, and was educated in 3D printing. Uh, and of course, they they hold a, a number of key patents and, and laser centering. So a lot of the uh, early like engineering experience I leaned on was uh, basically people and professionals and literature from that domain. Um, one of my early kind of mentors in this space was a 3D systems guy who who pioneered some SLA in the 1990s. So, like, um, laser centering is more what I'm more comfortable with. And so right now, if I really want to prototype something nice in, in 3D, uh, we do it with laser-centered nylons or, you know, glass-filled nylons, for example. But I find these to not be, for our purposes, let's say if you want to make some kind of component or receiver or something in the gun space, usually your unit costs are still a little too high, from my experience. So, you know, typical plastic processing or machined metals or aluminum will be whatever you can do out of those, let's say, laser-centered processes. But I have, I've also seen management literature and other industrial literature that, you know, that normalizes over time and adjusts for efficiencies and says, actually, you know, if, if these are complex parts, the centered parts over time are, are cheaper to make. There's less loss, less right. error. Um, it's a little, a little boring, but yeah. Well, part, part of the reason I think you are a phenomenon is because you are legally allowed to manufacture a lower because it is not considered a weapon. It is a part. And what makes a weapon, according to the government, I mean, this is somewhat arbitrary, if not completely arbitrary, is I think the barrel and, and I think maybe some other pieces. But when you get into making barrels, you're, you're basically in extremely high-pressure situations where you have to obviously handle an explosion uh, that propels a bullet. And in the case of uh, metal, I've always been curious if it was at least possible to 3D print a barrel. But if you did that, you'd also be going into different territory in terms of legalities. And so I don't even know if you guys would would contemplate that, but it it is a technical uh, curiosity for me, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, I have, like, the work that we did... uh, a few years ago, a lot of our 3D printing contributions to to firearms are, are kind of in the previous generations, and since have been both in like in the courts and in the in the platform field, like providing avenues and protection for the current crop of creators to publish and remix their work. But from what I've developed personally and have seen emerge, 
in the last five years, you know, printed barrels are are possible, very possible. In fact, there was a prolific Japanese designer, Emura, who, who proved printed barrels in a number of calibers. And of course, famously, we did Liberator in, in 380. That was a printed barrel. But what has kind of emerged is, uh, let's say, like the best practices for actually making you know, useful printed guns and partially printed guns is to, at the very least, use barrel inserts, you know, like metal, you could say like tubular shims, uh, which maybe defeat the purpose of, of printing a barrel. And so a lot of kids are just dispensed with the pretense. And like the FGC-9, for example, probably the most popular printed SMG just uses Glock barrels, you know, uh, or barrel blanks. And they, they spec out how to, you can make them yourself. But from what I've seen, like the most popular kit guns, both, um, you know, like polymer 80 clones that you can print the the lowers uh, and then the smg concepts like the scorpion and the fgc9 these just dispense with the printed barrel question and, and include uh, some type of prefab barrel to begin with i was blown away when i saw the uh, electrochemical machining setup uh, for the uh, quasi like quote unquote from scratch uh, but at least from bar stock uh, barrel in the uh, the latest fg fcg9 uh that was extremely impressive to me that you could go from a tank of salt water, a barrel blank, which is just basically a, a rod with a hole drilled through it, uh, and a, a 3D printed mandrel, and you can actually get useful rifling out of that. And I think it's emblematic of the ways that these technologies are sort of combining together. Like in order to get the jigs for the ghost gunner uh, for novel designs, those basically have to be 3D printed. Uh, in order to uh, get a, a uh, mandrel that's able to do uh, custom chambering and get decent rifling out of uh, ECM barrels, you've got to have a 3D printed mandrel. So it's the hybrid of all of these technologies that's really uh, both advancing the capabilities of somebody who's doing this in the garage. And it's also promoting kind of intellectual crossover between all of these uh, groups as they try to solve uh, each other's technical issues with uh, technologies that they're all individually familiar with. I, I think that's right. It's, it's a really, and probably the most evocative, evocative example um, of, of how the old and the new are like uh, recombined or, or somehow reappear. And so I, I think there's something thoroughly American about it. Like we, we can imagine the, you know, the beginnings of the, of, of the first American defense companies and, and production concerns. Were men in barns, you know, like Eliphalet Remington, who, who literally had their own mandrels and were just, you know, building crude rifling machines and just kind of touring around locally, just handing barrels out, right, as part of a process. And then, though, like some technologies now are, are vastly, or we would think are vastly more complex, some of them, as they reemerge, are incredibly crude. And, uh, and in their elemental quality, there's something. I don't, there's something of like the, uh, the ingenuity of reindustrialization or, and, and also like a, a kind of illicit quality of like knowledge itself. Like um, now, now the contest is not even about because the liberal, right, the liberal politician, uh, you know, the captive, hive minded, whatever, like uh, virtue signaling progressive, they don't care what a mandrel is, you know, or like how rifling works. Like, you know, they, they just want to designate knowledge certain chapters of knowledge like off off limits and you know certain like uh, elements of of uh, i don't know physical mechanics like uh, forbidden because like they i think they're dimly aware that whatever's happening here and, and how we, we re re recreate these technologies is, is some type of like arcanum or magic and and it, there's always a way it'll like re-emerge so uh i was really happy to see that that, that barrel blank technique is 
it works because it's so crude and, and kind of alien, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at a stack of PDFs from the uh, the 1980s or so, uh, clearly like photocopied six times from some gun counter or gun show counter. And uh, it's astonishing how the same uh, things sort of reemerge, like, you know, people... I guess probably Dremels didn't even exist at the time. So hacksawing sheet metal out and uh, welding it together. And now we're able to do the same thing with CNC lasers with uh, slightly sophisticated, more sophisticated designs. But we really seem to have ha come kind of full circle. There is a uh, kind of, I get the impression looking at just the timestamps on these things and the publication history that in kind of the 70s and 80s, uh, that seems to have been the initial kind of surge of uh, kind of tool shed engineering. And then for some reason, it kind of seems to have fallen off the map in the uh, the mid-1990s and then, of course, reemerged with a bang. Do you have any sort of impression of that kind of uh, chronology there or am I completely off base? No, I think that's a good read. I have only my personal experience here, right? And what gun shows I've been to and at what times in my life at the places that I live in those times. So, uh, you know, my own history, especially after 2010, is really skewed because uh, I, I drive a conversation about a technology which really didn't have a place in this space. But uh, even when I go to gun shows and machine gun shoots now, you know, the classics on the gun show counters, um, the little the little paper books, if you guys have been to a gun show, I mean, these are kind of, these are always reprints out of army manuals or collections from, from guys who kind of washed out after Vietnam or, or Desert Storm or something. There's this, uh, it's not like a, <laughs> an ex-con vibe, but there's always like this kind of disgruntled, you know, militia movement era kind of vibe to like uh, preserving these texts or recreating them. And so in the same, the same place you'll find like uh army field manual excerpts you'll see like well you know here's how you saw down a <laughs> not not that you would but here's how you'd saw down a shotgun etc here's how you'd build a landline like these texts all fill the same space uh, the turner so diary like, is always present on that same counter well obviously yeah of course so there's like this just in general there's this like insurgents toolkit you know like uh arcane literature you know i've got this type of books I've gotten or I'm like, you know, changing your identity or how to, you know, how to steal a birth certificate in Kentucky or, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It was say, uh, about the mid nineties, there's a series of books called the poor man, James Bond, which was basically just taking those kind of, uh, PDS, consolidating them in a print book and selling that in a, uh, a format that was sold through somewhat, uh, reputable cop shops and, uh, army surplus right. stores. So let's just let's just call this good practice then, right? Like there's always this insurgent mentality, which is a component of, you know, like uh, treason is basically as American as apple pie. So there's always some segment of the of those who have served in the military who come out and are going to show you what they used to do. And some of this even rose to the level of commercial publication in the 80s and 90s, like uh, uh, Gorilla Gunsmith comes to mind. You know, he was he just straight up tells you, this is what I did in Africa, you know, to do stuff I wasn't even supposed to be doing. And, you know, here's how you duct tape a shotgun back together. And some of this stuff just, it made it to a level of, of uh, you could even say it was within the Overton window or something. That's not the right way to talk about it. But basically there was a fall off to, to the earlier point. I do think by the time the militia movement, you know, of the of the Clinton era lost its momentum, 
and I guess we can tie that to like Mike Vanderbilt or somebody in, in its personality. And by the time we get the assault weapons ban and its expiration, we're we're in a new era. I'm not going to call it the 21st century yet. Um, it's still some late 20th century stuff, but clearly like enough uh, well-educated white people and urbans kind of just disregard that literature. And there, and there aren't enough young people coming to gun shows and picking the praxis back up. So I see where we are like right now with 3D printing and the internet and, and these you know, these insurgent open source communities, I see that as the kind of delayed generational pickup um, to basically republish this work, remix it, include it, and finally help translate it into the internet. Uh, so it's you know it's it's relief forces, and I and I think it's totally consistent um, with that praxis. Yeah, if I could, it's almost like they're taking the praxis into the internet age. Yeah, I I've, I feel that I've said that. I think it's. Uh, it's one through line, you know, obviously it's different yeah. personalities for different reasons. And of course there's a whole like post-historical post-ironic, uh, you know, like a lot of these kids now, they don't have a commitment um, to any particular ideology. Like let's say the militia movement did, you know, like they, they really feel no deep attachments even to their own country, but that's, even that's probably right. And these aren't uh, just because they carry the knowledge um, the same way that the gun show people did. That doesn't mean they're the same people that are willing to actually use these implements or show up in the street and like murder ATF agents or something. That in mind, right, like the, you know, there's uh, there's this character I assume you're familiar with, uh, Ivan the Troll. He has sort of uh, a PR strategy of of notoriety, I guess. Um, like the canonical thing being like. You know, the shit posts of the form, somebody says 3D printed guns explode and then like, okay, cue picture of mag dump. Uh, actually, these things can be fairly effective. Do you think that that's sort of a effective uh, uh, PR strategy, I guess, um, for advancing either um, the concrete uh, freedom, even after uh, sort of inevitable reactions uh to uh to arm yourself uh in accordance with natural rights uh and do you think it's uh sort of productive politically i guess uh, i'll answer it in two ways of course i'm friendly with ivan and control pew and these other guys and i i think what's happening first and foremost with the uh you know blow up you know con contesting to blow up your hand memes and stuff you know they they're proud of the work that they've done and and they really do uh want to show you that it's that it's effective work and then I guess in the next order, it's uh, it's really it's it's a level of meme craft that is you know particular to this community, which is important for the basically the coherence and and the, the stable network that this community wants to be. It's good that they have their own memes and their own music and sayings and stuff. I think that's very important. Is it politically productive? You know, may, maybe we don't mean that the same way. Um, I, I do think it's meaningful and it. it these guys are a much better cultural funnel for getting people into this work. Like when I was waiting, let's say like from 2013 to 2015, I didn't see anybody pick up on the aesthetics and the kind of post politics we were, you know, we were doing uh, with the work. And then slowly in 2016, it felt like it was picking up. And then finally, when I got in trouble in 2018, a lot of these, these cats were on Twitter and they had kind of, let's say been in high school when we were doing the defense distributed thing. And they, you know, they accepted and reproduced both the aesthetic and at least an imitation of the post-political messaging. And so I think what you see from Ivan is, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll I'll flatter myself a little bit here, right? Like Ivan, Ivan is a, like a poor man's Cody Wilson a little bit. Like he, you know, he he's learned and he's seen how to how to do it and how to be fun with it online and how to have disrespect for politicians and name the components after after them and stuff like that. He's not as he's not as good on the politics, obviously, but then that can come. He's a young guy, so I, I think in general this is useful stuff because it's it's important to a you know creating a let's say like a counterculture. And it is a successful and living counterculture. And so therefore, like, it's really beyond any criticism I can give it. I was just going to ask, um, of course, protecting and, and respecting the privacy of your customers. Are you able to tell us in a general sense where the activity is in your market? Is it in the urban areas? Is it in a particular part of the country? Or have you seen changes given the past year, year plus of the chaos in this country? I'd be very interested to know who's interested in 3D printing. Well, uh, you know, I, I sell to wider markets than that. So I can't just judge who's interested in 3D printing per se based on our on our commerce because the CNC thing is its own thing, number one. But number two, it really it feels more of a, a demand for the building of real guns and not and not really the supplemental activity that is 3d printing so though on on some of our you know with some of our businesses we we sell and reproduce 3d printed uh, files and we now operate defcad those classes of customers and those patterns and, and basically destinations uh, for shipment and fulfillment of product they're, they're totally different and i i wouldn't really draw easy comparisons but i can speak broadly about let's say california california is a special place and pretty much on all on all counts and all product categories california you know is overrepresented and over participates you could say there's just more money i guess there's more education there's more familiarity familiarity with with the gun space itself or at least the diy gun space and then i think crucially there's more experience with at least an, a generation uh, of difficult gun laws and so there's yeah. more comfort with navigating them um so california is just a, a unique island of activity uh, no matter what you're doing and how you're doing it. And then I could say, you know, very small things about Texas and the South and and then where there's activity in the North, it's, of course, in these places with endemic, you know, generational crime problems. Um, mm. And I should think that's no surprise to... to yeah, shit, right. Democrat-run cities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember this Washington Post fact check, I think it was like, you know, while Trump was being like these Democrat run cities and, and the Post was like, is this true? And they were like, of the top 20 cities, you know, one of them's run by a Republican. So fact check, you know, not true. 95% <laughs> <laughs> well, accuracy, still not true. Yeah, exactly. They're like, yeah, not, not true. <laughs> um, I was going to say, uh, not to digress too much, but uh, you talked about the different projects and I know, um, with uh, Defense Distributed and Ghost Gunner and Def Cab, would you like to take a moment just to explain what those are for any of the audience who have, like, no exposure to your work whatsoever? Just a quick, you know, introduction to those basic projects. Sir. That's, that's giving me the chance to. I, yeah, I, I, I just don't anymore, do I? But, uh, you know, Def Cab is our kind of longest-running project. It's I started in 2012, um, and already platforms for 3D printing were beginning to kick gun makers and gun files off of their sites. Uh, and so defcad.com, it's basically a, a compendium, a kind of, it, it, it aspires to encyclopedic, you know, uh, scope in, in its work. But basically, uh, pretty much everything that's being worked on actively right now is, is represented at DefCAD. So it's both a portfolio of, of the items themselves. 
it's a catalog and you can find the relevant creators working on those items and, and find out how to support them and their particular work if you want to if you're a fan of them you want to follow them yeah i, I was going to say but, for people who are actually using a 3d printer or a ghost gunner that's where they get the actual software for making the machine produce the weapon if i'm not mistaken sir uh, well, I'd correct you there a little bit. DefCAD is its emphasis like there's G code there, but but Defense Distributed doesn't okay. release on DefCAD. Uh, so it's we try to maintain a, a completely neutral third party, let's say alignment, uh, because that's the best legal scenario. Um, okay. And, and the law is better. Like you know the old CDA 230 that everybody wants to get rid of. That actually helps us uh, when we have the platforms, right? Like let's say. <laughs> post-political, you know, like uh, angry right-wingers, if, if you really do control your own platform, uh, that helps you with all these angry state attorneys general and stuff. They can't do shit about it. Uh, and so that's why that site exists, because the kids themselves, they found cool places to share their work, but they're not, let's say, as visual, they're not as open to the public, and uh, they're not built in the same way as like large public platforms like you're used to with, you know, you're, you know, we're all kind of spoiled in our expectations. So there's better UI and UX there. Uh, and better commercial tools. So that's DefCAD. Uh, and every day there's, you know, five or ten files added. So I, it's only been, you know, let's say relaunched in its current form for the last year. And who knows, right? Because that work is what gets challenged among everything else I do the most. I've been in court with that website and the files we published there for almost like seven years uh, in, in one federal court or another, one state court or another. So that's the most important work we would do, I say. Um, and it advances the ball on questions of IP and DMCA and and obviously the ITARC and, and State Department questions of who can and can't publish this stuff to the internet and why. That's the fight that we want to have, and that's you know that's the site where we have it. Uh, and then to fund all that work, most of our commercial activity is in a, a website in concern called Ghost Gunner, where we make a CNC that helps uh, basically it helps you finish all the popular and commercial eighty percent receivers uh, in the market, and that. Obviously, that includes the AR-type uh, rifles, polymer 80 pistols, uh, and then, of course, like AR-9 and these these ancillary things. Um, but, you know, that platform, I think, becomes even more relevant in an era where 80% receivers or unfinished receivers become themselves uh, illegal or, or banned. And then we get to really see uh, what CNC can do for that space. So that's a platform with, I think, at least a few more years in the tank, and a lot of people have... I think I've come to terms with that and understand it. So it's a very commercial space for us. Uh, and then our, our other businesses are just basically support businesses for those those two concepts. Are you, are you a fan of the open source software movement? Uh, you have a very interesting approach to your business, given that a lot of it is given away, but also you have uh, pieces of it that people can buy. And this platform strategy is sort of a modern or a newer one than the older school way of doing business. And I think it's very disruptive and fascinating. And I'd love to hear your take on it. You know, some of some of the business practices were made uh, under duress, right? Like, you know, if they if they literally are just going to punch you in the face every time you do it for free, you know, you, you're going to find like a way to be like, well, f fuck it. You know, like I'll sell some of it. Uh, and so some of that's just like uh, capitalism by, you know, by force, like you're just kind of made to conform. But I would say that at this point, there are sophisticated legal reasons why we do what we do. And also, you know, philosophical reasons. We look at the example of Red Hat Linux, for example, uh, like that's a very commercial business. I mean, really popular. Red Hat Linux is on, you know, your, your Boeing planes and everything. And the, the primary business model there 
pioneered in the 90s is one of giving the core product away and making your money on the, the support, right, and the ancillary development and the special projects and the kind of deputizing of your community, right? Like, um, and, and Ghost Gunner has a similar model now where the community is big enough, so many different projects are happening and so much software development uh, is required that I can basically open source all the software and the controls uh, and make money selling you the main piece of equipment, which you're probably not going to make for yourself anyway. And then I make a, a whole a whole lot more money supporting, uh, you know, the the other projects that the community wants to do anyway. So it's I, I tie it to um, to Red Hat Linux as a kind of guiding star, you could say. Uh, and so I, I think it is a thoroughly open source effort in that, like, of course, the source for everything is available and even on GitHub. Um, and of course, there's been no effort to patent anything. And, and at the same time, there's really been no rivalry, uh, both from our friends or our enemies. It's just, um, you know, it's finding the specific market and knowing you kind of had to do it this way because of political opposition uh, and the way commerce works in the 50 states. Um, I remember you saying on some of the older interviews uh, when you still talked to people like the Free State Project that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, part of why you ended up creating a, a commercial venture to the project is because you needed a commercial company in order to hold an FFL license. Wasn't that the case originally? Oh, yeah. There were all these, you know, like if, if you're not making money, there's always going to be good reasons to make money. <laughs> and, you know, that's as we all know right now. <laughs> And a lot of the kids in the 3D printing space now have figured that out. It's like, okay, cool. I spent, you know, I maxed my credit card contributing to this space. Maybe I should find a way to commercialize some of what yeah. I'm doing. It's a natural thing. Uh, but yeah, especially as you invite the state into your life to fuck with you as you fuck with it, um, you know, you're, you're both like working on each other. And so like it, it necessitated me becoming much larger, especially when I got in trouble with the state department because the fines there were, were in the millions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, okay, well, I mean, you can be done or you can, you know, find a way. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's many uh, successful open hardware and, and software projects that make money. So, you, could, you know, I just took some time to study and, and, yeah. and apply some relevant analogies to, to the gun space. And, of course, the gun space, it's like, especially in the last five years, uh, I mean, dude, it's green fucking pastures, right? It's blue seas. It's just anywhere you want to go here, uh, software helps that. Uh, open source principles help it. Uh, it's be, it's been neglected by major industry in Silicon Valley and, and yeah. you know, be, uh, by choice. So there's there's really kind of no way to go wrong once you start looking at it a certain way. Yeah, I it, I always thought that was an interesting approach to your business, and uh, as you said, it's something that all sorts of other dissident businesses or efforts need to look at. And I I was just reminded of uh, Sun Tzu's maximum by using war to feed war. I thought it was a great model, as you said, because the state's obviously going to fuck with you after you fucking with it. So it's, you have to produce resources to create a livelihood, if only to have, you know, the means continue fucking with them. But uh, as you said, there's yeah. nothing wrong with making money in the process. I suppose. I mean, there are purists, right? I mean, I come from a counter-economics background, and, you know, I, I, I fully admit that what we're doing here isn't, uh, you know, Konkin-esque in its approach. I mean, like I pay ADP, I pay heavy corporate taxes. You know, everybody wants their, uh, you know, Texas workers' comp insurance and everything. Like I'm fully integrated in the system, and I can more or less play like a, a dissident on TV or something. And the the kind of discomfort comes from how like your your motives are eclipsed at some point by like capital's own, you know, mimetic desire to reproduce. So like, I I, I yeah. get much more 
comfortable with myself when I realized, wow, despite all my difficulties and all the things that, that are said about me, uh, finance capital has no problem with me. Banks have no problem with me. Like, huh, maybe I'm not as far out as I want to pretend to be. And what does that say about my motives and what's actually happening? Have you, um, have you ever run up against any lobbying pressure from the traditional gun manufacturers who maybe don't like having a more distributed competitor out there? Well, I'll say this. I, I, things have changed. Like when, when I started, there was definitely like, a, you know, who are you? Stop talking to us. And then like when decision making was happening, especially in 2013 and 14, uh, you know, not only were we not invited, of course, in the room, but like all the deal making was done at our expense. Now, obviously, that in, that continues through the Trump period, not like Trump did us any, any favors. But um, at this point, there's so many people doing what we're doing. Uh, and I mean, just making guns. I mean, the eighty percent trade, for example, that it that it actually has like really good representation with the the same elite law firms that do the lobbying, the same connections, and as well, there's been a kind of rise and fall of fortunes. Like the NRA, you know, has collapsed effectively, and its most instrumental uh, legislative advisor and, and lobbyist, he's in private practice. He, he's more of a mercenary now and of course he's more willing to work with people who before the nra as a matter of policy wouldn't wouldn't regard uh, and i think that's beginning to happen with the nssf as well and i can be more illustrative there where in 2015 i mean like it's in the gun press online where the nssf like revoked my uh membership and and disinvited me from shot show you know and then two years later i have a i have a prime booth you know on the prime floor i mean you know, none of this ever gets kind of recognized. And in fact, it's probably a bit impolitic of me to point it out, right? Because I'm sure the NSSF still doesn't officially like me or ever want to like me, but like, here we are, baby. You know what I mean? You've been forced together by circumstances, as it were. Uh, it's just the way things have happened, yeah. And so I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I've, I've never really encountered official uh, opposition. If anything, we kind of, we filtered in there. We avoided major regulation in 2014. And now like we're big enough in the last five years. And that, I'm including a front of companies like JSD supply and 80% arms. I'm not just thinking of myself, but, but we're big enough. We're moneyed enough that it's like, uh, you know, like we're at the table and people are constantly seeing, you know, what we, what we think about things. I, yeah. I should take a moment here to say that Palm Rady is in a huge fight in many venues. They've got a big case, uh, in the Southern District of New York and one in San Francisco, federal cases where the gun control groups are trying to force a federal judge to change ATF definitions of a receiver and a lower, because as was pointed out earlier on this call, they're aware of how you know incomplete and, and totally inadequate their definitions of, of receivers and lowers are for this activity. Uh, and basically, these companies are big enough now to actually skew um, the legal outcomes. And, and of course, that attracts uh, not just consultants and, and lobbyists, but like major law firms and then major definitions of, uh, you know, political practice. When are we going to get a ghost gunner lathe? Uh, a ghost gunner lathe. Well, you know, there's CNC lathes, right? I mean, <laughs> you would right. sooner see. I want, I want one that's branded. It comes with the stickers. <laughs> He's selling well, one to him. I'll tell you, uh, we've 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 looked at it. You know, we've looked at okay, what's the next like companion machine that, that goes with this machine? Uh, unfortunately, like what we're doing here, like has still has enough room for improvement, and, and there's always like these ghosts in the in the microcontrollers. Where 
it's just for what our team is, like we're just going to be stuck on Ghost Gunner. I'm sure of it for another couple of years. So I guess I'm saying uh, go for it, you know. <laughs> you mean you're not going to do driverless cars? That's the next Apple move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all trying to do the Tesla enough. thing. I like, what about driverless guns? You know what I mean? I think that's more of a wheelhouse. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. That when I was Which really mind equals blown uh, when I was sort of learning about this stuff was when somebody showed me a video of a flying drone with like a 3d printed gun on it. And I was just like, Oh my God, you know, you put, you put a, an artificial intelligence in that thing. You, you program it to go fly over some person that maybe doesn't want you to have that to begin with. And boy, this is, this is an anarchical um, cauldron of uh, possibilities and you know given the way things are going i would not be surprised if we start seeing that in the united states we've already seen them in places like uh, ukraine where the uh, i think it's the donbass region is having a lot of dif- difficulties uh, they were doing this uh, five years ago and so i don't see why any reason why it won't happen here give it time well i i guess i do have remarks if you know, that are probably relevant for this, but you, you know, the, the Nagorno-Karabakh war, right? Uh, the Azerbaijan conflict, you know, that was yeah. kind of like a proxy right. for Turkey and, uh, you Israel. know, like well, of course, of course. Look, I'll, you know, obviously, <laughs> but, but anyway, in that conflict, I really, I, I find that to be defined by drone conflict uh, because, you know, a generation before, like anyone would have, have handicapped the Armenians on that. And for good reasons, I mean, they're a better fighting force, but these, these lower grade, cheaper kind of Canadian by way of Turkish drones uh, were dispositive, you know, like to totally determine it um, in the conflict. And, you know, like I, I really think that it'll be studied that way in the future. And, you know, like it, it also is like uh, it, it totally subverts your your economic planning for conflict as well, because, I mean, that was pretty cheap to get the outcomes it got so far it, compared to what's required. Go ahead. I would say it's ultimately like it's like an ultimate example of an asymmetric threat where you take something that's essentially off the shelf that's readily available that you modify into a weapon and you use that to uh, make unfeasible a legacy tactic which low skill armies in that region use which is trench warfare and they just you know negated that whole approach with something yeah i would say i mean i would agree with the remark earlier like i remember when uh when somebody put that gun on the drone and i you know honestly it was in our notes too it was like hey let's put one on a drone next and it was like well you know we don't want to go to jail yet you know (laughs) so we we waited but i you know it's i remember um talking to defense companies even in 2012 and so yeah drone swarming was was a big theoretical thing we knew china was doing it and of course you know putting a gun on a drone is obviously a, a scary thing but the knowing that the drone itself is an explosive device um it's a much scarier thing and and a lot of these i, I would you know i think of these things in like aesthetic terms i, I find drone warfare and ai and, and other things like that to be like what peter Thiel says i mean they're, they're kind of communist to me in, in their vibe uh and they don't pretend well for traditional you know like we we want to think in 20th century terms of warfare um I'm, I'm not happy about living in a world of 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 drone warfare but i i do think 
somehow um, this liquid market in, in 3D printables in defense is like a companion to that, which is maybe better for the individual. When you say you don't like the aesthetics of stuff like drones, are you saying because your projects are mostly about uh, ensuring the individual has the ability to wage war or defend themselves and you don't like the fact that it can be humanized and given to a machine or is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, I think that's one dimension of it. Like it's it's facets, right? Like I haven't really sat down and like written this out, but it's you know uh, like AI, right? Like AI completely defeats the individual and really undermines, let's say, like you know Hayekian the Hayekian mythos about the coordination that's possible with the with the central yeah. planner. Um, drone warfare does something similar. In, in, it's inhuman. It's inhuman to the point of super inhuman, you know, and it, it really benefits uh, countries which are more aligned with. Uh, you know, Eastern, I, I just see this overall rise of the East, right, for reasons which we, we really find distasteful um, and, and kind of anti-philosophical. Uh, and nevertheless, there's I personally, I, I eagerly await the awarding of the first Medal of Honor to, to a drone. <laughs> it's going to be you know, it's a, a true milestone in warfare. Corporal Spinney, well, think of how- you knew you so well. This would be translated in the West, though, as like, you know, um, a Medal of Honor to some POC operator, you know, who like sat in Virginia exactly. and like, you know, piloted drone or something. It's, you know, it's farcical. Funny enough, I know people in that National Guard unit that provides a lot of them from Virginia. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's thoroughly distasteful and yet, like, I guess, completely required. To that point, Fullworth, I think they've the military has already decided that the same rule that says that you can't give a military working dog certain awards has been used to say you can't give it to a machine. Interesting. That was my we'll see, that man. We'll see, man. I just, we'll see. I, just I, I just identified an emerging field of law. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what here's what's required, right? We need enough. We need enough people who are like legally, uh, you know, re- identified as cyborgs. And then once we have a kind of cyborg bill of rights, we'll <laughs> we'll be able to tear down that wall. You know what I mean? Uh, That's project number two. <laughs> silicon ceiling. You know. Well, I, I'd like to go back uh, to a, a comment we were uh, just sort of exploring um, in the last couple of minutes about the rise of the East and whatever's left of the West seemingly crumbling. I think one of the things about your legacy cody if uh, if you have one uh is that you're you're almost tapping into and i know this sounds a little corny but i'm sure you've heard this before tapping into that original american ethos of the second amendment and trying to be a rugged individual and one of the reasons why uh the the colleagues i have on this show talking to you today know each other is because we've sort of oftentimes come from the libertarian space where that's very important to us, but we've come to recognize that, especially these days, we're up against a very organized and very powerful force that is just not going to let us just be left alone. And the Eastern model is one of master slave, if you want to go to the extremes. I mean, the, the Chinese model is the emperor is the uh, the sky king of everything. Uh, if you look at how North Korea operates, um, it's the same thing. And fighting against something so monolithic as individuals is very uh, challenging, if not impossible. And 
I guess one of the things about the West that made it so competitive was that there were sort of groupings of individuals that were fighting each other. In other words, the nation state that ultimately created a larger organic force that sort of became Europe or something like that. But it's, it's very fractious. And I think going up against a monolithic force like China, uh, I think something needs to be changed if that's going to be the, uh, the game. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. I mean, you do business with China, but we're already seeing difficulties there because of trade restrictions and extended supply chains because of COVID and, and whatnot, and all the problems we're having here in America. So what, what is the, the geopolitical strategy, if you have an opinion on that, uh, given where we're coming from and probably what we're seeing in the future? Uh, well, look, I, you know, obviously I didn't go to the Harvard School of Government or anything. I'm just some shithead in Texas. But um, yeah, that, you know, that qualifies my, you more than them. <laughs> you know, I, obviously, like we agree on the fundamentals Like we have. What, what is happening here is a, is a, an oligarchy. It's in complete rot. The elite class is like, is, is so corrupt and moribund. And we all, I think in general agree to different degrees about that, even our enemies, right. And they're, and we just differ about like what there is to do about it. Um, and then of course it's a huge conservative like trope to somehow think that we can rescue these rotting institutions. But, uh, it's a life cycle of nations. I mean, I, I don't think that used to some somehow like, uh, look, there's competency, but I don't think there's like spiritual health. I don't think there's spiritual competency, you could say. And it, it's a lot of dumb money, a lot of dumb capital. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not one of these people that thinks like, uh, okay, like, you know, the Imperial East is, has got it. And it's another 200 years of like total Chinese hegemony. Uh, that's certainly the plan. I mean, that's their plan. And for as, totally somnolent as, as the Biden administration is, they seem to recognize these priorities in a similar way. I mean, that, you know, Biden signed a, an executive order on semiconductor pr production and, you know, not, we're not actually approving the sale of any of these firms to China. And we're still like, you know, there's at least like a, an official acknowledgement of the problem. I don't think that's enough to overcome the problem. And, and I think like Curtis thinks some type of velvet revolution has to happen and we have to inherit a new set of institutions at some point. And that's going to take a long fucking time. Um, but we're the West, you know, I mean, and everything, uh, at least for now, uh, you know, when things are philosophically distasteful to us, we're going to do something about it. At least I am. And, and I think guys like you are. So uh, I don't know. I don't mean to be unreasonably optimistic here. I just think, um, it is who we we are. We're sons of the West. We're we're going to build things. We're, there's always going to be Thermopylae. There's always going to be Xerxes and you know the Persian you know wave of men, and uh, that's just who we are. You're referring to uh, Curtis Yarvin, I assume. Uh, yeah, yeah, Mincha Smallbug. Yar, you know, Yarvin's been writing a lot lately, and and I think it's it's better than what like Nick Land's putting out. And look, I'm not saying I agree with it 100, but I, I like his characterization of the problem. Like, I I don't think there's going to be a civil war here. I don't think there's if anything, we've been going through a cold civil war, you know, since before we were born. Yeah. Uh, and uh, guess what? We lost, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say on that point, the fact that we're defeated occupied people seems to be something that uh, at least the mainstream right in the U.S. seems to be willing to come to grips with. Because I think that's the next thing that has to be understood before there can be any, any counterattack, as it were. 
Maybe. Uh, you know, as long as there's there's this problem of like agreeing with the media ab- about what the fake right wing is, from my point of view, like don't don't agree with them about what you are and what you're doing. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of culture that hasn't been created. And I and I think for there to be a new regime or for something that would be something that we could be proud of, like mm-hmm. we can be the progenitors of It's going to take a lot of work and just a lot of hard cultural, technical work. And in fact, um, I'm not telling you to like, you know, tune out or anything, but actually like the less you fight this thing, this, this new American empire in its own terms, I think the better off you're going to be. Yeah. uh, I know it's one of the points we've discussed in the past that I look at this is almost uh, from like John Boyd's perspective. It's uh, the downside that it seems to be affecting so much the American right, whether it's mainstream or dissident, it's the tendency to see issues as something to be reacted against. Whereas I think you make the point uh, like Boyd would that, no, you have to actually act and be the creative force and make them react to you if I'm not putting words in your mouth, sir. Yeah, I don't know. Look, you, look, Pat Buchanan ran on everything you guys care about, right? And uh, it was rejected, thoroughly rejected by a country that was much wider and, and much more to the to the right of Jimmy Carter than the, the American right of today. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's not going to be a, there's not going to be enough voice, and there's not going to be enough opportunity for exit. So, you know, we can work on other things, and to some degree, experience relative relative freedom. I don't think that's available to me, by the way, because I just chose to be like a dickhead about everything. And I, I stop doing it, you know, because it's and that's my problem and, and I'll suffer for it. But, you know, like if you were to just invest in Bitcoin right now, you know, uh, you got a chance at having a family and having some land and, you know, doing something uh, of, of some relative merit with your life and yeah. teaching something valuable. And, and I think that's probably better practice than anything else I could talk about today. Yeah, I would say as of today, I think you can still mine another 14% of uh, Bitcoin is out there. So that Look, I'm not telling you to get into mining, but I do think American industry could, could trans, transfer into mining. And But, it, but just in practical terms, I mean, uh, the American dollar is toilet paper. It's going to keep being toilet paper. You can complain about it or you can get into a harder asset, you know. Right. And uh, so what are you going to do? Uh, this is one of the the bit the Bitcoin thing is a wonderful example of whenever you're talking about the sort of moribund nature of the West as opposed to right because you do you, Bitcoin we you think of it as you like, oh, oh you know oh, like super libertarian um, you know invention that sort of thing but if you look at the hat the network hash rate I think over half of it is held in China right now because that stuff has to be mined in places with cheap energy and that's one of the one of these one of these just concerning things about the west to me right now is that there doesn't appear to be much i mean the that is obviously not too bothered by bitcoin but they're also not too bothered by chinese ownership of bitcoin whereas you know 50 60 years ago even if we didn't have any you know geo geopolitical uh you know interest in something like bitcoin if the chinese were offering you know free uh you know free electricity to miners we would start subsidizing miners just because we want them to have it and uh we just we just don't we don't seem to think about things that way anymore and that's one of the things that sort of you know i think is disappointing as much of an opportunity as bitcoin is you know well i mean, i think there's room for that to change um you know like I, I don't know what that price point is in bitcoin but like uh, obviously there's i know miners who used to be actual miners in texas or oil and gas people and now they mine uh, Bitcoin or BCH, and there's specific opportunities and competitive advantages for doing that in Texas, let's say, uh, as compared to anywhere else in the United States. But uh, you know, the the Wall Street people are beginning to care about Bitcoin and 
how it's mined and the you know uh, integrity of the protocol and, and other, like there's a lot of things that institutional clientele now have an interest in because you know a lot of companies are beginning to take stakes in it and so I guess what I'm saying is that that interest that stewardship and even at, at some point a, a level of, of state interest has to secure and then at that point I, I think you could reasonably see uh, the shaping of policy around it you, you need enough people who hold Bitcoin in Congress let's say but again like uh, my point of view is is relatively uh uh, about not collaborating with the state. So, you know, maybe they'll figure it out. Maybe they won't. But I'm telling you that you can independently of what they do. Do you see any other major areas of opportunity or at least necessity out there for people who want to uh, get out in front or get out of the way, at least, of what uh, what seems to be the devolution of this, uh, this country uh, in decentralization? I mean, for example... Um, you know, we've already decentralized information. It's it's relatively, relatively, uh, extremely accessible. Uh, but things like physical assets uh, are sort of following along. And, and I think you're kind of at the leading edge of that with 3D printing. Do you see uh, other opportunities for decentralization in other categories that maybe we, we haven't thought about before that may be required going forward? Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe I'll take this opportunity though, to kind of broaden the answer. You know, I, I'm interested in, in protocols like IPFS. Uh, it's a different way of addressing, you could say, on the internet. And I mean, in brief, it's like, you know, the uh, one one hash for one file kind of locates that file on the entire network. <clears throat> and the hash table itself is the distributed part, kind of like uh, in Bitcoin. And so, you know, like the, the whole problem of servers of origin uh, especially you know as concerns like information that we find important but is always getting censored that problem goes away because the entire legal apparatus was built around you know addressing based on where a file is located uh, and so protocols like IPFS you know completely rethink uh, the internet and the browsing experience and I think that's pretty cool uh, but obviously Bitcoin is is like the huge structural revolution of our time um, and there's been three or four major opportunities to be a part of it. I think there's at least a couple more opportunities to be a part of it. And I would say, oh, I don't know. I mean, there's, I think there's still a revolution in, in communications coming. I think the big thing like your audience can do if, if they're young enough is to recognize it. <laughs> and probably they're all but 30 year old dudes like, us. <laughs> but it's like, you know, don't go to college. <laughs> like, uh, you know, if you, if you want to do important work i mean you have to be self-motivated go to go to sci-hub read the papers you know recreate things find people who have the the subject uh, domain specialty and interest and you know don't get caught in these major schemes uh because basically these institutions you know they can't imagine doing anything else so just don't get into significant debt don't become indentured to these legacy institutions and and you're already like so far ahead of anyone else that you can kind of chart your own course and and, and afford to mess yeah. up if you Speaking of uh, charting your own course, uh, you were the uh, the producer uh, of a uh, a documentary uh, TFW No GF. Uh, actually, uh, I guess this might be partially answered, but uh, when are we going to get a ghost gunner for GFs? <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, uh, boy, that's a, that's a question that I may not be uh, <laughs> the best to answer. Yeah. Or is that seeking arrangement? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you know, the ghost gunner for GFs is as yet not quite legal, but uh, we're working on. Uh, no, I don't know. I, mean, I, I was gonna. Wait, say, or was for, saying for GFs or XGFs? Start, 
Because <laughs> I we were talking right before we started recording that I had finally seen that the uh, the other night, and uh, that was the most hilarious thing I have seen in a long while, which is probably sad since it wasn't meant to be. Well, if you know, if you think in there's there's different terms like I, the the movie doesn't necessarily accept the mainstream characterization of the incel phenomena i mean it does carry the characterization so you can then see you know it's like a foil so you can see what these incels are actually like you know but in fact i think incels are not even involuntary in their celibacy they've i guess this is a nick land point that i just read i'm picking up on but it's like you know people have, have found these kind of ludic escapes um from culture because it, it really is that oppressive or, you know, totally alienating. And, and so there's just these general escape valves in the internet or in, in gameplay and stuff like that. Or basically these people are saying with their lifestyles, it's simply not worth the time, um, you know, for me to conform or, or for me to pursue, rom- you know, traditional romances in, in the way I'm told to. So I don't know. It's, I, I see it as like a, the male superego in a, a alienated dissidence or something. And, and maybe this is just what adolescence is now for a huge fraction of the public. Yeah, I was going to say when I watched it, the, uh, the one thing that did very much stand out is, you know, their relationship with women was only like one small piece of the pie. And all the, all the men discussed or, discuss, or just, you know, talking on camera, all of them were very, you know, candid and forthright that, you know, the lack of access to female affection and sex was you know only one issue in their life and it for most of them i don't even think that was like the number one priority it was just a uh, a good shorthand for describing their alienation and so in that sense i thought it was a really great show just to showing what uh young 20 something alienation looks like right now and it was horribly sad at, at the same time as being funny as shit and i should probably feel bad for laughing the entire time no no i, I think that's just it that it, that she was able to humanize these people in in their particular sad situations you know and that that was the real crime because of course the, the popular press turned on on the film and said it was like normalizing and giving yeah. people because it was produced the, by a woman wasn't it well she was a, the director alex alex lee moyer yeah she was um she directed and she basically you know secured all the relationships with these people and, and that's mm-hmm. really the biggest part of this thing like no none of these people like angela nagel and these you know uh, the the literati none of these people would ever dirty themselves with actually you know striking up a correspondence with these famous twitter trolls and seeing like what was actually happening in their life yeah. uh and and that's what happened here like alex kind of became an incel for a time on twitter and and with all the Sad posting, like really found some of the best sad posters and you know shit posters, and and convinced quite a few of them to to let her in and, and give her a view. And yeah. I, that's it, right? It's just a good, what what do you want to call it? Like cinema verite on the yeah. subject. I don't think it's really more political uh, than that. It, it's only political to the extent that just commenting on reality without lying off your ass is now a political act in America. Um, like was it the two brothers, the ones who are constantly shooting AKs? I thought they were some of the most self-aware people that I've ever seen describe their lives at any level. And I say that as somebody in grad school who's listening to people describe everything about their lives on a daily basis. And I, I thought right. they were some of the most insightful people that I've that I've listened to in years. Oh, I feel you, man. Like completely aware of their low status, completely aware of like a lack of opportunity. Although I would say that there's a bit of you know, it's endemic to this uh, culture that, you know, the self, the self pity is kind of, I don't know, there's like an apotheosis or something like it's, it's too much. And there's always opportunity. There's always something you can do beyond yeah. this. Yeah. 
but even that, I thought the show or the film did a good job of just dealing with that because you see a lot of these guys, uh, what do they do to rise above that self-pity? And you see a couple of them just talk about what they do professionally, which is dead-end jobs, but they're actually making money. And, you know, guys who get into fitness, which, you know, people would say is self-defeating, but it's not. I mean, it's at the most basic, you know, tangible level. They're they're changing something in their life for better. So one of the things that was surprising to me is, yeah, we talk about the level of self-pity, but some of these guys, I think, they're very rare in the sense they stepped beyond their self-pity and overcame that, for which I have the utmost respect. I'll, I'll agree with that. I, I think she lets, that's the inning that she tries to have with it. She lets Confot kind of say as much. And then, you know, you get to see that Sean is working out. And obviously you can't follow up with everybody in every way. But, you know, there's the implication that this is, uh, this is just part of what coming of age is now. And it's like totally... Yeah society and and okay that's why it's a good document you know and i, and I don't want to be too too tough on the guys or or even no, the director uh, but yeah i thought it was fun to be a part of that um and to produce that and i'm trying to i'm trying to produce something else with with alex now her next film uh which i don't quite want to reveal but it, you know it'll be a real cool. it'll be a real dinger um to what degree did you i mean you said you were involved to it what degree were you involved in creating this was this mostly her idea did you have a background on the idea of this or oh no it was completely her idea okay. I, I i i could take responsibility for introducing her to, to compot in new york um but you know compot's not exactly a friend of of our audience i'm sure so there's no real credit yeah. due to me there, but but um <laughs> that was know, my we, first time being exposed to him and on any <laughs> any level, and I was sure I'm unabashedly, I'm unabashedly a huge fan. Good, good of I, of, of Campbot. Even though the 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 only thing the the most direct interaction I've ever had with him is he told me to he told me he told me to go fuck myself and after you endorsed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he's the kind of Diogenes or something, right? He's he's a, he's a troubled guy, and but he's he's a he's he's great as a literary figure, I think. And yeah. he's probably this century's more notable, like Twitter literary figure. I mean, I think he's great. Uh, even though he's always at war with himself and, and I've done podcasts, you know, I have nothing really too bad to say about it. He, uh, he, well, I was saying he's the kind of person I think if I had to go on a car ride with him, it would end with me choking him. No, he's, he's really and personable. But it, but at the same time, just he was the most hilarious and insightful pe- person just in some of his comments and his ability just to cut to the bone was hilarious. Like the yeah. scene where he's in uh, Times Square, where he's saying he endorsed uh, um, Trump because he wanted to raise Thule. And I thought that was like the greatest oh, troll in the history of the world. Dude, complete, completing the system, right? I mean, that's his meme. I mean, yes, <laughs> great memes yeah <laughs> oh yeah that was his guy so yeah i've heard it well, he's, he's got a way he he's got a way and i think he's in his he's talking about you know the history of philosophy and that sort of thing but he does have this way of approaching it that you will never find in a professor of philosophy anywhere in the united states or anywhere in the world which is the essential recognition recognition that these guys were largely fuck-ups and you know that you kind of have to you kind of have to think about philosophy from the perspective of fuck up to be able to understand why somebody would bother writing any of this stuff down and, it, and, and he, he he gets to the bottom of that in a way that you know it was always that was the stuff i always wanted to say in grad school but ne- but never did because i because i also wanted to graduate <laughs> you know he's he's unimpeachable in some of his reading i mean he's he's really done the work 
you know. And while he hasn't done a lot of the other work that we would consider important to a well-rounded, you know, life, uh, he, he's done that work. And it's funny, he's had some of the best takedowns of like stuck-up liberals yeah. I've ever seen. Like I, I hung out with him in Austin one time, and we just happened to accidentally come across this BBC producer, you know, who thought he was like hot shit and, and really unconnected to what we were doing, but. Uh, so Kampa was like, oh, you know, what'd you study? And he's like, oh, I studied literature, you know, uh, arguably at some, you know, important university. And so, you know, here, here Kampa goes. He's like, well, well, did you read Tom Jones? And the guy was like, uh, no. And then he's like, well, did you read Henry Fielding? He's like, no. You know, he just keeps hitting him over and over. And, you know, just making this guy bow down. It was, it was really impressive. Well, I, I think what you're touching upon is the phenomenon that if someone has deep curiosity and also the time because of perhaps social circumstances to actually think you discover that people find new things to talk about. But if you're dealing with uh, very socialized individuals, perhaps like this other fellow that uh, you and Kampbot were talking to, uh, they don't have time to think because they're, they're caught up in the milieu of the chattering classes. And I think people who are a little bit of an outcast, I wouldn't call them fuck ups, but I, I basically call them different and they have a different approach to things. They have more opportunities to discover new things because they're not constantly bombarded with the midwits of our world, uh, writing pieces on more claptrap that uh, was reposted from the Huffington post or whatnot. I think this is where you truly need these types of individuals in our society. This is typically where the uh, sort of hermit or mad scientist archetype comes from. It's, it's the people that uh, just don't get along with the normies. Uh, it's the Nikola Teslas. It's the people who just need time to really break through. I mean, look, man, you, you know, you want that blue pill or that juicy steak? I mean, I get it. I get why you want that, you know. But I think this is why Nietzsche, you know, wanted suffering only for his friends. And, and we, this is our great blessing that we can yeah, be marginalized and have to operate and work against the overwhelming tide of our society. And every, everybody, every writer from every period that, that we regard was, was writing against their society. And, uh, okay, good. <laughs> Begin, you know. <laughs> yeah. It uh, it's one of those interesting things when you you take a moment and you realize that we think of so many of these philosophers as being the uh, foundational to Western society and civilization, which they were. But uh, as you said, to think that that in many ways they were reacting against the society of their time and was a challenge to you know the status quo of their time that that definitely puts in perspective. Uh, there's no you know like the the great the great and dangerous ideas of our of our time are, are not anything that came around with us. I mean, the, the, the dangerous right. ideas of our time are from the beginning of the last century. So we should, uh, I don't think we should struggle to preserve ideas which are as dangerous or something. I, th I think we should feel more confident that like uh, there's only these over-socialized individuals in these kind of undeserving oligarchs. And as long as we don't bother them too much, we're almost completely free to pursue a whole set of ideas, which they themselves are find too difficult to truly investigate. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's good. That's our advantage. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say like we live in the best of all possible worlds. God knows we don't. And there's, there's plenty to be upset about, but honestly, like the, the superficial attachments to the world of, of ideas, reason techniques that, that our ruling class has, uh, it should be so obvious to you. They, they cannot come to some of the depths that we inhabit and yeah. uh -oh, funny than what can be built there. 
Yeah, it's uh, one of the things I think increasingly it's interesting and just like any field of human study, it's interesting that you see and even some of the most basic, you know, otherwise, I would say blue pilled or status quo disciplines like psychology being the ultimate example. It's uh, anything that relies on any kind of real world evidence, quantifiable evidence. You see that it ultimately comes back to a demonstration of human nature at some level, which ultimately runs into the uh, the orthodoxy of uh, malleable human nature. And you can tell when they run in the wall because that's the point where they just stop talking on a concept that was like the uh, you know their obsession for the moment. If I'm not speaking to it in general, oh, no, I, I think we would all probably agree with that. Maybe we should find something we don't agree about on the, on the podcast. <laughs> What else do you guys, uh, you know, like what's, what's on your mind? Um, survival. Yeah. No shit. If you had, I mean, when uh, this is sort of a, uh, a really general question, but I mean, just in the circumstances that they changed since we last spoke in, uh, I guess July or August and, uh, you know, in the last few years since I began following you, what, stands out to you just in the last year or so as just being the the radical change that uh, most surprised you has anything come to mind uh well you know just how how quickly uh, whatever this crop of americans you know conceded to the restrictions on their freedom that that was surprising to me since i've lived here my whole life but uh you know i mean i'm from arkansas so arkansas put up some of the the last best you know opposition but, but even even they in time uh, you know, exceeded to the, the restrictions. Um, I, I was surprised at how quickly as well, like the, the stimulus went off the chart. I mean, this, this whole last year has made the Obama, you know, fiscal era seem like really measured, <laughs> like restrained. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's sad actually to see like, they're calling it disinflation right now, but we, we know it's going to be like significant inflation and of course the property market's overheated and the that's student right. loan like, they just know, don't we, count we know that, that there's yeah. yeah there's just like massive problems which we know are only going to end one way and, and i'm sad i'm sad that in the country of my birth you know the the idealism i want to have for it uh that it was able to fall apart so quickly and yeah and I, I know this country will maintain its name and i know kamala harris will be a strong imperial president for three or four terms but I, you know, it doesn't quite make up for, uh, what was lost, but, but that's what it is to be an adult, you know, to make your, I'm sorry, make your, did you say strong independent president or strong imperial president? I didn't, I, I didn't quite. I, I, I said imperial. <laughs> I, I do think democratic conditions will create the monarchy. I just don't think it's in the direction that we want. <laughs> Well, since, since you were looking for things that we might possibly be able to debate, uh, this is one thing that I have wondered about, given the uh, open nature of your uh, your company and your some of your philosophy as well. I mean, I, I believe you've called yourself an anarchist. And I guess my question for you is, would you try to limit some of the open access to things like uh, 3D printed uh, lower receivers if you knew that that was getting into the hands of somebody like uh, Antifa or somebody that you would just generally disagree with? How do you reconcile those things? Well, I, I would say uh, we can make it a better experiment. Like I do know that stuff is in the hands of Antifa. You know, I've, I've seen the, the write-ups and I've seen uh, proof with my own eyes. And the 
the chop, for example, you know, in Seattle, I mean, some of our uh, merchandise showed up there. Um, but I take that as proof that what we're doing is working. Um, so I, I don't, I don't see it as like an impeachment of our principles. And if anything, like, you know, it depends on what, on what you think, right? Like I, I watched in 2015, most of the street fighting that I saw and the kind of paramilitary gestures I saw, it, just, it all felt like play action to me. And, um, you know, good that there would be those groups who would possess the energy to, to actually equip themselves and stand in the street, you know? So, um, I'm definitely not an Antifa, and I find it all distasteful, but I also see it as a, a huge endorsement of what we're doing. Well, perhaps you think in order to rebuild, you have to tear down first, and I think that's the accelerationist argument, if you've heard that term before. Uh, I, I go back and forth on it myself. I mean, it really comes down to, do I think this thing is salvageable or not? Uh, and then also, if it isn't salvageable, if you do blow it up, are you going to be able to uh, regroup and build something better afterwards? And that's not always the case. I mean, you know, Carthage was destroyed definitively. It didn't come back. Uh, so there's not a guarantee that your model of a civilization will return. However, if, if the civilization you're living in is on a trajectory that is into the the depths of hell and there's really no other option you might as well just throw a wrench in the gears it's it's it, it just it takes it takes a lot of courage to do that because there's really no going back at that point well i, I know a responsible man wouldn't would never take that approach right i mean there's you're looking for stability you're looking you know i i get it i, I try to afford you know my my fellow travelers politically with, with all the you know the goodwill of their intentions and positions and of course, I'm sympathetic to, you know, Roger Scruton style conservatism. And uh, but look, I just don't uh, the level of economic planning involved, and 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 basically, like you know, it's it's just a more healthy point of view, I think, to recognize that you are insurgent in this state, and that it movement conservatism since the '80s was entirely wrong. You know, Donald Trump could have put, you know, eight more Amy Coney Barretts on the court, and it wouldn't have fixed all the problems that we saw at the end of 2020 it you know it's it's features of these institutions themselves which are incorrect and and this ties back into nietzsche i mean the fight for liberal institutions themselves is the noble thing but once you create them like these things move in one direction and you know sorry that you were you were living at the end uh of whatever this republic was and of course it's an oligarchy that advertises itself as a democratic republic it's just better that you see it for what it is and where the centers of power actually are and, and not confuse yourself like those rioters at the Capitol. You know? Yeah. I was going to say, ironically, the best part of the riots is the way the, uh, the leftist establishment assume, you know, just took their language to uh, condemn them. I think that did more to radicalize right wingers in America than, you know, anything the conservative movement has done in the last 30 years. When, you know, when I hear my own father say, because he never really bought on to what I was doing, but when I heard my own father be like, well, this isn't my country anymore, voting doesn't matter, I was like, oh, well, you know, welcome aboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Send them to uh, our website. Yeah, or, or, or maybe less anecdotally, right? Like, you know, you've seen the public polling on, on this stuff now. Like, um, 
huge segment of the population is suspicious of, of the vote and, and voting now. And, and good, like that's, come on, that's, that's how it was a hundred years before Caesar. I mean, you yeah. know, like everybody knows that this stuff is too big to cohere. There's too much opportunity for corruption. Generations of this stuff, like in, in, in Philadelphia and in Detroit and, and obviously Atlanta. Uh, okay. Like, you know, like did, see with, see with open eyes, maybe this will break up into regional power centers and, you know, like maybe there's real politics to be done, but in general, I, you know, we we don't have to call it anarchism, but like, I don't think you should be working for rehabilitating this thing in any way. Like, what is what is Trumpism without Trump? I mean, forget about it. Hopefully, it's building something alternative. Uh, whatever yeah. that means, you know. Yeah, well, I think that's kind of what this discussion is about. Um, I, mean, I mean, what do you want, right? It's like, uh, and I know you guys are being friendly to me, and I, I want to be friendly to you, but it's like, you know, what are, is our hypermodel here? Like, are we are we pining for the America of 1984, or 1994? What, what are we looking for here? Yeah. I, I, uh, I, that's what I want, but I don't know how to get it, and I think that's the big problem. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a strategy that is proven to work and I am scratching my head as to a viable strategy to get back yeah, to 1984. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll take it if there is one, but uh, many would say that that's actually a, a false, uh, false promise uh, or a false uh, paradise because it led to where we are today. And I think those are valid critiques. Um, I would say not only did it lead to where we are today, I think it was in the process of already beginning the fall. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't, I don't dig the great the great change of causation quite as much, but you know, the I, the only the thing I only see right now is that it, the we've run into the same problem everywhere, which is that we just don't have a lot of people with you know sufficient you know economic and maybe spiritual agency to be able to affect any kind of change for the better for better or worse. You know, we're like the, the way we eternally locked into the co-pilot seat and and in a ways and I, that, that's the thing that I would like to change well, you know, yeah. I, I don't care I don't care if I make it better or worse I just want to make it something <laughs> you should credit yourself for, <laughs> you should credit yourself for clear thinking here because yes like political engagement and potential is at its like absolute lowest and you know what happened in the 20th century uh, you know the, the, that political potential potential was built up for such a long time. Like it's just not available, and we're going to have to reckon with the idea that whatever the transition is that we desire or want or is coming, is going to have to be one that's possible only through that low political potential yeah. and low engagement. You know, even we, we terrible moderns, whatever our attachment is to these ideas, I would still posit to you is like a kind of ironic attachment, very postmodern in its commitments, and you know, like we have to play all these games to like arrive at the place we got it, it, it it's just not something that you can expect to scale at the very least and that's to say the least about it so uh okay you know curtis for example right now is writing about a velvet revolution as the only possible alternative you know it's probably right but i'm not going to waste my time waiting on it you know i mean like with with the bitcoin and the guns for example okay i know two things right i have access to hard currency and i know how to make a firearm i mean that's something two or three pillars of a state uh you know i haven't figured out <laughs> some of the other stuff yet but uh yeah. it, there's lots to do and then of yeah. course it's just a feature of, of being like a western mind to yeah. like you know you know that you're alienated from your capacities and, and you should be you should be building them 
Yeah. So in that regard, though, because, I mean, this is, gets back to what we discussed the last time we interviewed. But uh, if we're going to have some kind of discourse about the future and creating a vision for the future, do you see that occurring anywhere other than Curtis? I mean. Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry. I mean, you know, Curtis in, in person is one of the most ridiculous people. <laughs> but No comment. Uh, Where the other? His writing's fine and clear. And, uh, what I'm saying is, yeah, I think a lot of people are thinking this way. And uh, a lot of people are building cool projects. And maybe some of the best things and, and places to be doing that are in software. Maybe that's true. But, you know, like if, if you got a degree in computer science right now or some education there, that's probably still very useful and will be for a long time. Yeah. Same thing with me. Like, I, I think the, the world is kind of realigning around some new energy norms and, and trade agreements. And, you know, uh, you're not going to hurt yourself with, with those kinds of knowledge, like how to knowledge in uh, LNG or, or, you know, petroleum engineering. I mean, it's all super relevant, but I don't know beyond that was, what, what is relevant. I was going to say mechanical engineering just because it gets short shrift a lot of times when we talk about technology. But, uh, People who can actually design physical components seem to be a uh, missed out or ignored sometimes in these discussions. Uh, look, I know some of the best mechanical engineers around. Um, I found, though, that, that it's much easier to get that degree, and, and a lot of those people are still just kind of as lost and listless after they graduate. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, sure. Hard sciences, why not? You know, these are things yeah. you've all heard a million times. But, yeah. uh, if they're lost what, and what, listless, what, what, that means there's revolutionary potential there. <laughs> maybe we should hope. hopefully i mean I, i'm trying to actually <laughs> towards an end of the discussion move towards look, something positive as opposed to us all saying that we need a new documentary about being alienated in your 30s after being oh, alienated no. in your 20s. I don't, I don't, look I, if anything you know it's like uh, you, we have to deal with right-wing realities too which is like these are this is a society that believes in nothing and yes we can't pretend differently and you know like i've some of the best right-wing philosophy i've read isn't about the return of religion it's about the fact that like you know you, you have to think in terms of like religion not even existing and um okay cool and like that goes for post-left stuff too i mean like you know find out where you are and orient yourself and then you know like like they say about depression i mean it really affords you the most clear look at your life you're, you're really thinking the, the, with the least amount of delusion in that depression so okay, think and look clearly. And, and, you know, some people aren't saying it's the time to act. Some people aren't saying action's possible. I, I disagree at the margins. And then again, my life's not exactly a great example of, of overcoming. Like, you'll get smashed if you wave your hands, you know, big enough and yeah. act loud. <laughs> if you well, combine yeah, that, you that extra to contextualize, uh, contextualize sort of what you mean by action and that sort of thing. So how, many, how much energy could you spend? How much energy do you spend, um, you know, haranguing people into you know into going to church on sunday and everything you know knowing full well you know independent of whether or not getting more people to go to church and then engage and engage with other networks of churches politically independent of whether or not it's a good thing uh you know how, how much of it can you do and then if you if you spend less energy on you know that sort of thing you can sort of look around and say well you know there are there are there are ways that i can you know that i can that i exert energy here and see a better return on it um i think that's that's definitely true is that just sort of you know th thinking maybe in, entirely differently than we than we have been accustomed to think for the last hundred years or so um, i'm gonna say something even more like i don't know 
I don't want to use the word grounded, but it's like, okay, you know, like what's the industrial equivalent of like brushing your teeth, right? Like I'm not even saying pick a trade. I'm just being like, uh, there's so much opportunity for reindustrialization here. Um, or, you know, commitment to, to, to skill and industry. I mean, just pick almost anything that there's a kind of national deficit in and, uh, okay. It might take you five, 10 years. All right. But like, so what you, you will be rich, you will thrive because literally no one is willing to do the work in this, in this society anymore to, to build or make, or, you know, maintain anything of, of industrial independence. That's a, a much more concrete way to say uh, what I was trying to say. And I think it sounded better coming from you anyway. Uh, okay. I was to say the industrial equivalent is uh, warehousing because it's fairly low skill. And it's also the thing that every manager in the history of the world likes to ignore because it's dirty, which means they're losing money there in this room for somebody to do a better job. Sure. Uh, look, I'm dealing with a level of incompetence, even in Austin, Texas, which is astounding. Uh, it's like, okay, you know. <laughs> People are giving away these tools. I, I'm on these mailing lists where people liquidate equipment all the time, mm -hmm. right? There's not a lack of opportunity. You could get, I mean, I helped, I helped this dude up in Liberty Hill get a new CNC. Obviously, it's not brand new, but it's like 20 years old, but not out of spec, right? They gave that thing away, dude, because this is like a medical parts supplier. They don't care. They got infinite money. You know, you yeah. could start a machine shop tomorrow, okay? Uh, now, that's that's obviously a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm just saying, like, there's so much yeah to do that isn't being done or even the very modest like you know find some land start a farm and like you know the land and the that commitment will tell you what else needs to be done yeah one of the things that came up in a recent discussion is if you're going to do anything learn how to drive a forklift because that seems to be like one of those skills getting back to the warehouse oh i don't know i've seen uh, some of those amazon warehouses where the computers do all that but yeah, uh exactly I think well, I think learning I learning how to do something uh, that is in an, in a growing industry I think is probably a wise move. Well, I would say uh, the warehouses are still going to be there, and you're going to learn how to work in a warehouse in the process of operating mm -hmm. a forklift. So it's step one with sure. being the warehouse guy being the bigger sure. priority. Like if you've got an IQ above ninety, okay, like I'm, I I swear to you, you can learn to work in a machine shop environment and, and to operate one, you know, it's like you, you don't even have to commit yourself to like, you know, like this kind of endless hallway of wage cucking or whatever. I mean, just make something for somebody, produce value at any level. And I guarantee you in, in just committing yourself to the, the simplest problems, like you begin to see what the chain of value is, what the supply chain is, what lo logistic constraints are. And they are so prevalent. So, everywhere you look that I, I promise you a, a commitment to solving a particular problem just lends itself to more problems. And, and that as you demonstrate competence, you acquire capital, you solve more problems for more people. That's just how it works. That's a great point. Yeah. I wanted to ask you just a, a philosophical question, um, Cody. Uh, and I, I sort of don't want to bias your answer here, but try to be as uh, introspective as you can on this. If you were not facing, like if you had the choice, would you wish away all of the controversy, all of the legal battles that you've had to wade through uh, and just be an ordinary middle-class guy without all those troubles? Or would you rather be the guy who has actually been out at the battlefront fighting against the, uh, the empire? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know the answer, right? Like, I, I got a real kick out of everything that I've done. Uh, and, you know, I did it for me because it was 
it was great entertainment and it felt like the maximum use of my capacities. You know, I've more than a few times I've hit my total mental limit from like stress and duress and stuff. And I think, uh, you know, I, broadly speaking, I think a man really doesn't feel fulfilled until he, he knows he's done that a couple of times. Um, you know, there's a certain absence when you know you're not reaching your, your limits or the fullness of what you feel to be your capacities. So that was what I needed for me. And um, I don't necessarily need it in the same way anymore. Although I, I do have, there's, there's other ways that I experience this kind of fulfillment and, and contentment. And, and I like to see my work continue and, and grow and how it's influenced people. And uh, so, yeah, of course, I would never just choose to drop out in the middle class. But I, I do still find that to be a, an honorable you know, pursuit. And I certainly had that crossroads moment. Um, you know, I had that chance to like live in Indiana and like, you know, <laughs> you know, like, uh, work in Indianapolis and just like have a nice life. But, uh, I guess I always sensed that kind of will to adventure, you know? Yeah. So no temptation to go back and finish your last year of law school. Oh no, not at all. I mean, you know, now people in the, in that last year of law school, they, they study me, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> you have made case law. Uh, that's how that works, you know. So that's all right. Um, this is a somewhat a digression, but one of the things I always ask when uh, you know I interview leaders or you know just about their profession and public life, um, is there like any one thing you wish you had done differently, which isn't the same thing as saying you regret? And uh, your obvious legal troubles does not have to be that. <laughs> feel free to not discuss that. I want to. Great. Well, yeah. I mean, asking for ID would be a, that would be a good move, probably. But uh, yeah. You know, uh, probably not, man, because honestly, like I didn't, that ass kicking I got was so complete from that. And like, I had banks pull credit lines and I had, you know, like uh, employees leave and I had to like re-engineer so many things. And, and I really didn't get the kind of like stable backbone of, of my company until I, I went through that. And I should not—I should say not just my company, but like, uh, man, it really kicked my ass psychologically too. And it—it it took me a couple of years to kind of rebuild myself in a in a new way. And I think that was important because I'd done about the most I could have done in that uh, that other form. You know, I needed to, uh, as Frieza would say, right? Like, I needed to go to my next evolution <laughs> to be able to like do stuff. So I, I'm I'm thankful for that, like that total ass kicking. Yeah, um, you know. If I didn't yeah. survive it, that's one thing, but I, but I did, and I, and I was really able to to know like a lot more about my network and my capabilities, and I have a much stronger company now because of it. Yeah, I was to say completely anecdotally because I because of friends of friends, I know some people who work for you, and they uh, the one comment I've heard is it's a lot of your closest guys that are there, so they they really feel like it's a uh, defense distributor. Your company is a company that really matters. It's like a place they belong, and. Uh, I was to say it's really weird because the uh, that weekend that you got into legal trouble, me and you, we were actually coordinating over uh, Twitter about getting you to come on the show, and you said you would, and then it all kicked off, and it was uh, it was really weird timing. So uh, it's definitely a moment that a lot of people remember for obvious reasons. Oh my god, man! Yeah, well, it just had this kind of one-two about it, right? Like I, everything kicked off real hard for about a week with the with the states and everything i had never been sued so fast and so hard <laughs> so many places and then of course i had to you know that 
I found myself in Taiwan like three days later, you know, just a mess. I was, I had a Russian visa at the time, by the way, I was really worried it was going to get much worse and they were going to like label me with like uh, all this international conspiracy and like try to hunt me down and stuff. So it, it ended a little quicker and more mercifully than, than I probably would have let it if it was in my control. Um, but what do you do? You know, I'm a, I'm a tough guy. I'm, I'm very disagreeable. So, um, anyway, I, I, I don't, I'm sure I won't get the chance to play it again that way. So I'm, I'm much more careful and, um, yeah. our, our company and our customers have, have benefited from that. Yeah. We were actually taking bets on whether or not you were going to, uh, be like Snowden living in Russia that week. Yo, that was my plan. I had a 10 year, I think I had a 10 year Chinese visa at the time too. I, I mean, you know, do you want to say I, that on air? They, they pocket warranted me man it's like no one told me i was trying to check to see like okay is there an investigation like what's going on are we talking to the da you know i thought i would just get to play it like some celebrity or something and and of course they just wanted to stuff me so i, I had all these plans to get over into china or russia and just see what what could happen and then that would have only made it worse on my family and uh and my life you know so i'm, I'm glad i didn't get to not to mention your life project would have gone away almost certainly yeah, exactly. Right. Like, so this, this feels like a, you know, uh, a second chance and like, uh, whatever, right? You know, I'm not going to like celebrate it too much, but it's just, uh, I'm okay with this because so many people got canceled after me and I was already kind of on the edge of cancellation regardless, you know, and Assange is rotting and, and solitary confinement. Like all of my heroes are still living it worse than I am. So yeah. it's like, all right, I'll take this for what it is, you know, as some, uh, <clears throat> attitude adjustment, you know, and, uh, I'll, I'll get back to work, the hard work. And then, you know, eventually people will, um, you know, they'll, they'll be benefited from it. Well, I want to yeah, say, uh, no retreat, no surrender, but I think there's no dishonor and also remaining effective if you do have to make a choice. And as you've mentioned, you know, people like Julian Assange and others have really, felt the full brunt of the system when they critique it. And I hope that doesn't happen to you, but if it gets to the point where you no longer have any other choice, I think people will understand and appreciate it. Uh, it's kind of you to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to be put in that corner again, but yeah, let's say that I'm ready for it. If it does happen, it won't be a surprise. This friend. Uh, no, no, it won't be. But, um, but you know, look, it's like, we don't, Ah, you know this this presidency, this administration. I I don't think it's that interested in in us the way that we that we think it is, um, and I think it's better this way culturally for everybody to be talking about canceling Dr. Seuss rather than whatever it is Trump is you know posting about. So you know I I think the the winds are if not in our favor at the moment they at least give us uh, cover. Yeah, ironically, being canceled has the effect potentially of creating cover for action. Well, they're certainly not as bad as they would. It, you know, say what you will about the Trump administration. It was rough, you know, <laughs> rough. It was a rough four years for our people, for the, you know, for the most part. It did, didn't, you know, didn't, didn't catch any favors. It, it brought uh, us you know, more scrutiny. Associating that's why, yeah. It, it, it brought yeah, exactly, the spotlight exactly. to everybody. And, and what I'm hoping now is that we can, uh, we can be forgotten in a sense, uh, and, and not be ineffective, of course, but the media has always has a villain and without Trump, they're going to be searching for the crumbs and hopefully they get yeah. bored. They get bored with that. Yeah. And hopefully, like I said, there's a cancellation can have the unintentional effect 
of making us invisible and something. So like we said in the earlier, earlier point, the, uh, the fact that Cody was his old ghost gunner project was canceled by the media and they won't discuss it. It, by doing that, it also means that some of the elements of the state that would try to suppress this isn't aware of what's going on. So you can operate in uh, daylight, as it were. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, in general, I'll, I'll agree with that. Although I do think our the anti-gun lobby is completely caught up to, to us now. Um, you know, every, every opportunity they, they get, they're in the politicians' ears, like the especially the New Jersey delegation, the Connecticut delegation, Blumenthal, Menendez, these guys. There have been bills, like the last Congress had a bill to ban the ghost gunner specifically, uh, if not by name, by description. So, you know, there are complete, let's say, contemplations of, of how to stop this problem. But again, we've made it so difficult because we've abstracted the components of making a gun and, and commercialized those abs- more abstract components. It really is like a complete interruption of of, let's say, the skills necessary to preserve a defense industrial base or, or you know, to translate <laughs> an education in classical mechanics or something. I mean, you know, it, it, has to, it has to have a limiting principle, and that probably saves us in time. Um, maybe not, but it, it, it probably does. So um, I guess what I can say is uh, it's just good to make your problem as big and intractable as, as possible. <laughs> The multitude sat As the cattle cars pulled along the rusty tracks One raised his hand In the fading light Said, excuse me sir This doesn't seem right Now he's gone like whispers Gone like rain Gone like the faithful while the faithless remain Gone like the stone the builder refused Gone and overdue With a strong undertow No one crosses it to freedom No one pans for gold Its waters are clear But its waters are cold Its current is swift And no one knows where it goes It's just gone like whispers Gone like rain Gone like the faithful while the faithless remain Gone like the stone the builder refused Gone and overdue Gone and overdue
opposite corner don't appear on no map. Coyote scream rips the night in half. He hears the devil coming, footsteps on the path. So he chews off his own leg to get out of the trap. And he's gone like whispers, gone like rain. Gone like the faithful while the faithless remain. Gone like the stone the builder refused. Gone and 